I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you? Got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, it's Sean. I just wanted to give you a heads up. We're doing something special for the first time, and that's going to be an Ask Me Anything on February 1st. So this is going to be a live Zoom call with hundreds of different fans of the show, and you're going to have the opportunity to join this call and ask me any questions. And so if you're interested in attending this call on February 1st at 10 a.m., Eastern time, you can just click on the link below. You can sign up and you can also submit questions that I can answer on the call. So this is something that's going to be a lot of fun for me as I get connected with you, the listeners. So if you want to join, just click the link below. Remember that's February 1st at 10 a.m. Eastern time. You're going to get to join me on an Ask Me Anything call. Really hope to hear you guys there. Today on What Got You There, I sit down with Sebastian Malaby to talk about his new book, The Power Law. Now, Sebastian is a fascinating insightful author who really uncovers and dives so deep into the different people and companies he's writing about. And his new book, The Power Law, is all about the venture capital industry, both its history and then modern day titans, such as people like Peter Thiel, who we talk a lot about and understanding more about his thought process and how he arrives at his investment decisions. We also talk about Sequoia Capital, which could be the greatest venture capital firm of all time and what they do and the things that Sebastian uncovered that is unique to them, that has allowed their people to thrive and flourish. We also talk about people like Paul Graham at Y Combinator and the variant perception these different people have. That's not all we talk about. We, we do dive a lot into the power law, which essentially is success begets success. The, the more success you have early on, the more you have a later. And we talk a lot about that. But we also talk about some of the things Sebastian's learned along the way, both of his own internal process for writing and research, but then also writing some other legendary books like More Money Than God about the hedge funds and The Man Who Knew, all about the, the life and times of Alan Greenspan. This was a really fascinating, enjoyable conversation, talking about venture capital, talking about investing, talking about power laws, talk, talking about universal mindsets. And there's so many different things, no matter what you do, you can apply these lessons in. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sebastian Malaby. Hey, listeners, as you gear up for 2022, I have an important question for you. Is your investment strategy where you want it to be? Because in today's unpredictable market, there's probably never been a better time to diversify your portfolio with a resilient alternative asset class, assets like blue chip works of art. That's right, blue chip works of art. Did you know the price appreciation of art has outpaced the S&P 500 since 1995 and is estimated to be worth 1.7 trillion? Yes, trillion with a T. And this year, Everyone can invest in artwork without spending millions of dollars with Masterworks. Masterworks is disrupting the investment landscape, so you can add paintings by iconic artists like Picasso, Monet, and Basquiat to your portfolio at an affordable entry point. I had their CEO, Scott Lynn, on the show back on episode 274, and he just provided a masterclass in what it takes to lead a hot-growing startup. 
I was blown away that Masterworks is the only company out there securitizing artwork. It's super exciting stuff. And since I last spoke with Scott, some of their investors received a net IRR of 31% based on the recent sale of a painting. Mind listeners can receive priority access to their newest offerings. Just go to masterworks.io slash what got you there. Again, that's masterworks.io slash what got you there. You can also see important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Are you looking for a delicious and healthy nutrition bar that is keto-friendly, low-sugar, and protein-infused? If so, look no further than New School Snacks, who's reinventing the low-sugar snacking revolution. Now, for me, health is one of the biggest things I think about, and eliminating the sugar from my diet is crucial, and that's why I love New School Snacks. So if you're one of those people who also want to change the way you approach nutrition and snacking, then head to NewSchoolSnacks.com for great deals on their collagen bar loaded with healthy fats from MCT oil, and while you're there, pick up one of their brand new mouth-watering French Toast Crunch Bars. That's NewSchoolSnacks.com. Sebastian, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Great. Nice to be with you. It's very good to see you. So we're going to dive a lot into the different mindsets of some of the legendary investors and venture capitalists that that you've studied over the years. But I would love to know, is there a mindset of yours that you just have found to be instrumental in in your progress, development, and success you've experienced? I think, Sean, patience is really important. I mean, what I'm trying to do with my writing is not necessarily to be the most productive guy in terms of like how many books I publish, but to really write good books um, that hopefully stand the test of time. And for that, you just do need to be patient. You need to wait. You need to, you know, if there's a certain person you need to get to see and it takes you six months, uh, you patiently nudge them, figure out different ways of getting to them. Who do they know that you know? Who do they, who do you might know that, know somebody who knows somebody who then knows them. You know, you just need to hang in there and not give up and be persistent and gritty and not be... I think that's... I tell myself this all the time because it's kind of against the culture, right? I mean, we've got a, a world of social media and instant you know, tweets and all that stuff and everybody's operating at a very high uh, velocity. And I think I differentiate myself by being patient. Sebastian, it's so funny you mentioned that um, around the patients. I was just talking to someone actually yesterday about this, and I'm kind of balancing it and back and forth on that teeter-totter between patience and persistence, right? Like I think about it inpatient with action, but patient with results. I'm just wondering how you think about that balance in playing those long-term delayed gratification type games, but also putting forth the necessary effort you need and almost being impatient at times. How do you think about that? Sure. I mean, um, by patience, I don't at all mean um, not working hard. (laughs) Um, It just means that, you know, with the book or this kind of research that I do, there are always multiple balls that you're juggling in the air. You might have, you know, 15, 20 people that you'd like to get to see. And if one of them is proving to be difficult to reach, you persist with the other 19 and um, you don't give up. And you certainly, when you, when you get that break, um, I mean, I remember on my most recent book, the one about venture capital that I think we're going to talk about, um, I was extremely keen to really get inside Sequoia and understand how they functioned. And I'd been trying for a long time. And then I finally figured out that if I went through one of their limited partners, who was kind of like their customer, um, I might manage to 
get inside the door. And so I tried this and uh, this friend of mine who was an LP at one of the major endowments uh, emailed Sequoia and I got an email back from Doug Leone, the uh, chief investor there, uh, within about 10 minutes. It was a Saturday. And of course, I was right on it. I mean, I immediately uh, emailed back. And when you get that break, you absolutely go for it impatiently. So you're right. But at other times, you've got to calm yourself down and however hard you might want to push something You've just got to figure that patience is a virtue. Oh, absolutely. It's funny. You, you almost mentioned kind of like getting in the side door there. Uh, I'm wondering, do you kind of think about that framework of, of going in the side door and finding unique ways in everything you do? Or is that just around essentially landing great interviews with people that are usually hard to reach? Well, in a way, these days, you know, writing books itself is a slightly side door activity, especially the long kind of books that I do, which, you know, take me five years or so to, to research and write. Um, you know, as I was saying, the culture is a very fast culture. It's a very high velocity, you know, quick turnaround type of thing. And even a startup uh, could scale to, a, you know, a billion dollar valuation in the time it takes me to write a book. Uh, you know, a woman could have several babies. I mean, I'm, I'm really operating quite on a slow, <laughs> a slow cadence. And that, I, I think of that sort of my, you know, differentiation, my variant perception, my you could call it a side door or just a different way of coming at the world, uh, which I think yields a differentiated result and, you know, gets me into conversations, into connecting with people kind of through a side door because it's not the obvious way of approaching life. Sebastian, what I appreciate about you and your work and what you're able to do is that you've identified, you know what, actually this long-term approach, four years, five years to write a book is my style. This might not be other people's styles, but I'm going to push off that external pressure to all of a sudden come out with a book every single year or just those really fast instant type things. And I'm wondering for someone who's younger earlier in their career who haven't really built that foundation yet to be absolutely confident in their approach, is there anything you've done throughout your career just to enable yourself to have a stronger foundation in terms of how you operate and work best and allow that work to shine through? Yeah, and I should make clear, because that's a good point about how do you operate when you're younger. Um, the first couple of books I wrote, you know, one was in my 20s, one was at the end of my 30s. Um, I wrote a lot quicker. The, the one in my 20s I wrote very quick. It took about 10 weeks uh, to get most of the writing done. Um, so I haven't always operated like this. And in fact you sort of need the luxury of having a bit of a name brand um, and therefore the financial security uh, to give yourself the time to spend that long on a book because obviously you need to earn money. And um, if you just spent five years and then it didn't sell very many copies, you'd be, you'd be in trouble. Um, so what I would say to younger people starting out is that I, I, I can't, I, I'm a big believer that you kind of experiment in your career and your life and you try different things and when something starts to work, you pursue it. Um, and you don't know ahead of time which thing is going to feel right for you. But I think just energetically going at a lot of different approaches and feeling and finding the way that's best for you is, is the right way to, to get to your niche eventually. It's funny you bring that up. I don't know if you've seen the, the recent research paper uh I forget if it was in nature or where it was uh, around exploration versus exploitation. And essentially it was saying all of the people who experience the the highest return basically in terms of what they're able to do in their career. Um, so gr great 
authors, great creatives, all of that. It was that process you talked about. Try a lot of things, explore, and then all of a sudden when you find that thing, they go super deep, and that's when they're hot streak. I think the, the paper might have been titled something about experiencing hot streaks um, in your career, mm-hmm. and it was all about that. I, I am wondering, though, you mentioned changing the writing style. Uh, in your 20s, you wrote that book within 10 weeks. Why for you did that writing style evolve into being such a slow, deep, methodical type process as opposed to that really fast 10-week type approach? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's not something I, you know, it speaks to your previous point, right? I didn't necessarily premeditate those different choices. Um, they were driven partly by circumstance. In the case of uh, that early book, um, I'd been a correspondent for The Economist magazine in South Africa. I had um, been there when Nelson Mandela came out of jail, and I figured, wow, you know, all the other books about South Africa are now out of date and irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write the first post-apartheid, post-Mandela release book. And uh, I was super excited. I'd written a lot of journalism about South Africa. I had a lot of material from the journalism. And I could only negotiate a, a limited amount of time away from my day job, which was to be an economist journalist. And so I had those 10 weeks and I just knew I had to get it done. And I did. I think, you know, later on, what's different is partly that the kinds of books I did required you know, a different sort of research. It's like there's a kind of journalistic overview model of book where you sweep together lots of anecdotes and a few big ideas and you kind of produce a a quick book. Um, When you're trying to recreate and reconstruct a history that nobody's really told before, which is what I've done with, you know, my most recent three or four books, um, that just takes more time. You've got to go dig you know, somewhere where nobody else has dug before. And you're going to dig a lot of dry holes when you do that. You know, you're only going to hit that gusher, which yields usable material every once in three or once in four times. You'll show up to a lot of interviews and find that you learn nothing. Hmm. Um, So I was taking on tougher research projects. I'd also become more a perfectionist in my writing. So I think that's not to do with kind of, line-by-line line writing, which I think I've always been a bit perfectionist about, but it's more in the structure and a sort of sense that I think a lot of times about how movies work, that, you know, um, sometimes the director is giving you a wide-angle cut, other times it's a close-up. Uh, if you especially watch TV, you see how quickly the scenes change, you know, every 15 seconds or something, you know, the camera is pointing at a totally different set of characters, and so you're cutting in between scenes. And I think although books are a different cadence, you have some of the same tricks that you have to, you know, at some points be writing in an analytical expository way. And then you don't want the reader to get tired of that. So you switch to a narrative section and sometimes you're homing in and sometimes you're panning out and you're thinking of moving that camera around all the time. And that just requires quite a lot of patient um, tweaking to, to, to get the balance to where you feel happy with it. Mm-hmm. So I think I've just become, you know, both more um, ambitious in the research projects I take on and then more ambitious in the way that I write them as well. 
it's always so intriguing to hear about people pulling from other domains. You mentioned the kind of understanding cinema and film and how you incorporate that into the cadence of the writing process. I actually, I actually think about creating a movie in a very similar frame is how you're starting a company, right? Like you've got to, you got to find the director, you got to get, you got to get all the, the stagecraft correct, correct, the costumes, everything like that. You got to get the correct people in place and it kind of forms together and it's this evolution over time. Uh, so I just find that really interesting. I, I would love actually hearing though more about finding those gushers in your research process, right? Like meeting after meeting, not leading to much, and then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, this just led to something that's just going to be so fascinating in the book. For you, analyzing your entire career, is there one of those gusher type moments where you found something or it was an interview, a conversation where you were like, wow, th- this is really going to change things? Anything like that come to mind for you? Sure. I mean, there's, there's a few of them, but I'll, I'll pick one from my biography of Alan Greenspan. You know, I spent five or six years on that book. Um, and there had been other books about Greenspan before, of course, because he was the Fed chairman for 18 and a half years. He was a big figure. Um, but I wrote one which really went a lot deeper. Uh, and one of the times where I really felt I had something which was going to differentiate uh, what I did um, was that I, I was determined to kind of recapture the culture of Greenspan's consulting company from before he was Fed chairman. And I I went off and I interviewed all the people I could find who had worked for him. Uh, and this was back in the 60s and 70s. So it was you know, quite historical stuff. And I found this um, man who, who lived in kind of a clearing in the woods in Virginia, who had been the operator of the punch cards and the old computers that Greenspan had. And it kind of been the guy who fixed the, the photocopier. And so he was in the office. He was not an economist, but he had seen Greenspan close up. So I wanted to go see him and just say, hey, what was Greenspan like in those days? What kind of man was he? And um, I also knew that, you know, Greenspan at the time had been really into Ayn Rand. Uh, and he'd given a bunch of lectures about Ayn Rand's economics. Uh, but nobody had ever told me where to find these lectures. And I looked everywhere and I couldn't find them. And I got talking to this, um, this source in, in, in his cabin in the woods in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, he says to me that he loves Ayn Rand. So then I put two and two together in my head. I say, oh, so you were working for Greenspan when he was into Ayn Rand. And he gave those lectures. Do you know anything about those? He said, sure, I've got, I've, you know, I love those lectures. I've got the entire transcripts of all of them in my basement. So my, my eyes get three times as wide. I, I, I kind of try to contain my excitement because I don't want to sort of, it's a bit like hooking a fish. You, do, you don't want the fish to, to swim away. So I, I kind of pull on the, on the, on the line uh, to, to, hook, to hook the source, but not too hard. Um, and I say, wow, you know, that's pretty interesting. Um, any chance I could take a look at those transcripts? He says, sure, I don't see why not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a week later, he's photocopied 300 pages, and I have the entire map of my subject's mind, um, you know, as he crests his late 30s, in a way that nobody had had before. And in those 300 pages, I'm reading them, of course, and uh, suddenly Greenspan's writing that the creation of the Federal Reserve is one of the greatest disasters in American history. This is the guy who headed the Federal Reserve, who, who embodied central banking, and there he was saying that, you know, uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve was a disaster. So that that was one gusher that I'll always, always remember finding. I, I can only imagine the amount of even like 
internal personal satisfaction, right? Like it's even like you're exploring the the unknown and then you find this buried treasure. Uh, I think about this myself. I've been really fortunate uh, with, the, with the podcast, having some guests share some deeply personal, almost like what's going on in their mind during really interesting parts of their career or their business that they've never shared elsewhere. And seeing inside the mind of someone like that is just truly fascinating to me. So I absolutely loved hearing that story. I'm intrigued analyzing just your work and the the progression over time. Has there been a through line for you throughout your entire career? Like, is is there something deeper behind every single book that's consistent that you've been trying to get at? You know, it's a great question. I think the first book was sort of a case uh, of its own, the one about South Africa and Mandela coming out of jail and all that. Um, I later wrote my next book, which was um, about the World Bank um, and development economics in in poor countries. So there was sort of a connection there because it was about development and South Africa, of course, was in some ways a developing country. And so there was a link. But the World Bank was turned out in a way that I didn't anticipate to be a kind of a hinge book, which got me into writing about development economics. And then I was thinking more about finance I'd done quite a lot of financial journalism for The Economist magazine, but I hadn't written a book about finance. And then all of a sudden, my editor at Penguin says to me, you know, what about a book on hedge funds? Um, And um, I was thinking about it. And, you know, the idea of how you have variant perception in markets, how you are so confident about your opinion that you bet against the entire market and everybody else that intrigued me psychologically and intellectually. And so I, I, got, I started to look at it. I did that book and it, it went well. And after that, you know, I decided that writing about financial history and different cuts at financial and business history um, in kind of the US post-war era, 1960 to now, roughly speaking, um, is what I was really fascinated by. And so, you know, my book about hedge funds was the history of public market investing and ideas about how you make money in markets from the 1960s until now. My book about Greenspan was a book about central banking and how you manage finance from the 1960s until now. And my venture capital book, which I've just finished, um, is a book about private market investing, about technology investing from the 1960s until now. So there is a, a commonality, certainly to the last three books. Yeah, I, I, like I mentioned to you, I uh, just thoroughly enjoyed the new book, The Power Law, uh, fascinated by the minds uh, of venture capitalists. Uh, I'm wondering for you, is, is there a consistent mindset amongst all of the people you've studied? I'm thinking Mandela, Greenspan, some, some of the legends like Soros, um, even which William Robertson has done at, at Tiger Capital. Is there something that you're like, you know what, no, no matter what they're doing, this is a very consistent theme throughout? I think variant perception and a willingness to to kind of take a risk on that variant perception is very important. Um, you know, most people who make their mark on their world are are people who are willing to kind of take a different path to everybody else. Because by definition, if you if you do what everybody else is doing, it's pretty tough to be distinctive at it. Um, and it's so, you know, Mandela, if you think about it, was a person who was willing to you know, believe in his cause enough to be in jail for 27 years and basically to come out at the end of 27 years with exactly the same set of views about justice in South Africa that he had gone into jail with. I mean, it's a pretty distinctive path. Um, if you think about an investor, um, there's less self-sacrifice involved, of course, but 
there is a sense that you know you're going to pursue a, an opinion, a view, a hunch about what the truth is about valuations, about markets, about how the economy is going to develop, and you're going to pursue that even though everybody else thinks you're wrong. I mean, by definition, in the stock market, the price at any given time is the is the weighted average of everybody's opinion about what the price should be. So if you're saying it's wrong and you're going to bet against that as a hedge fund investor, you know, it takes a lot of conviction and you probably have had to go off and do a lot of research. It's, you know, people sometimes have this image of investors as being, you know, kind of impulsive, um, sort of swashbuckling risk takers who kind of just roll the dice and say, whatever. I mean, in my experience of interviewing these people, they are normally highly deliberative and they go deep on some intuition and they do the work and they develop enough conviction to bet against everybody else. And clearly in venture capital investing, that's the case, right? You're, you're betting on a startup, which by definition, everybody else thinks is doing something crazy um, because it's such a long shot, right? I mean, most startups fail uh, and, and only a minority get this exponential takeoff. Uh, and and that's what makes it exciting and challenging and emotionally challenging, right? I mean, uh, Rudolf Berter, who is one of the top people at, at Sequoia Capital, um, was talking to me once about how, you know, it's an emotional roller coaster. You start investing as a venture capitalist. Inevitably, a lot of the early bets you make will fail and go to zero. And that will happen faster than the success stories become successes, and so you're going to go through this period when you crash emotionally because you were wrong and you lost your partner's money uh, and you feel terrible about that. And then a bit later, if you're good or you're lucky or whatever mixture of that two you know, ingredients is, um, you'll have something that goes really right and you'll be making 10x, 20x, 30x the money that you put in. And you'll go from despondency to, to elation, right? From from being crushed to being in danger of hubris. And you have to regulate your emotions in both directions. And so, uh, you know, these are, you know, these paths that take people to really making an impact on the world involve risk, they involve emotional risk, and they take a lot of gritty, you know, resiliency. I could go so many different directions because I'm so fascinated by about 10 different things you said right there, but I would actually love to go a little bit further there on the emotional control these people have because I'm, I'm kind of thinking this as a parallel journey between kind of like that, that self-awareness and, and your overall success. And, and I'm wondering, of all the people you've studied, who have you been just thoroughly impressed by in terms of their ability to know thyself and to be able to then cultivate the conditions to most allow their best and highest level of intellectual thinking to shine through. I know that was a lot there. I'm, I'm just wondering like who operates at their best and then was intentionally creative in cultivating the conditions to allow their best selves to be able to come through. So I think a very interesting figure that I've, I've studied for my venture capital book is Peter Thiel. Uh, I mean, he's super controversial uh, because obviously he is a conservative politically in a culture which is broadly libertarian slash liberal. Um, you know, he was the only prominent Silicon Valley guy to support Donald Trump in, uh, in the 2016 race and to give a speech at the convention. So 
definitely a controversial figure, and I and I don't agree with everything he does. But what I would say about Peter Thiel is that he's a brilliant guy and he's very self-aware. He thinks through his positions. And when he has arrived at some insight, he does actually have the courage to, to follow it. Um, so, you know, I think his biggest insight, um, which was not original to him, but which he went further in articulating and then acting on is this idea of the power law, which gave me the title of my book, right? So the power law um, is the notion that, um, you know, 80% of the investments you make will do nothing, but 20% or it could be 10% will account for all of the returns in your portfolio. So this is extremely skewed um, distribution of outcomes. And from this insight, it follows that the only thing you care about is not losing bets because you can only lose one times your capital that you put in. What matters is trying to get into the ones that you know, are going to go 10x, 20x, 30x. You don't know ex ante which ones those will be, but what you have to force yourself to do ex ante before you invest is only to invest in the ones that are so original, contrarian, and different that they could be uh, a 20x. And so having decided that, you know, Thiel saw that, you know, cautious bets, sensible bets, sane bets are just a waste of time in his business. It's only worth making really out there, difficult, scary bets. And therefore, it follows from that you should hire a certain kind of person and you should organize your venture capital partnership in a certain way. He makes a point in, in his own book, um, Zero to One, that of the people who founded PayPal, the payment startup with him, you know, several had built bombs in high school. The point is not their technical ability, it's their craziness. And the craziness meant that they were crazy, but that was a good thing because you had to... You had, it's like, it's not, I mean, people often say, oh, you know, people in Silicon Valley are crazy. These geeks are crazy. Gee, that's the culture. No, it's much more specific than that. Unless you are crazy, you won't do something that is crazily different to other people. Therefore, you'll be following in a crowded area to other people. And therefore, even if your idea is pretty good, 10 other people will have the same idea and they'll compete with you and your profits will be competed away. What you've got to do is, is have investors working with you who are so different that they're going to come at the whole question of where you should invest in a different way. And yes, sometimes it will be a crazy different way and you will lose all your money. But so long as you can be right one time in 10, two times in 10, then you will be successful. And I think, you know, he really, Peter Thiel really has pursued that um, in a way that inspired me to, to put that idea of the power law as the title of my book. Uh, and it's one of those ideas that once you, once you get it and you start looking around at other investors who are doing venture capital, you kind of see the power law everywhere. And I could talk about that, but it, it, it was the key that sort of unlocked the secret source of Silicon Valley and technology investing for me. I would love to talk about that, of seeing the power law everywhere, um, because, yeah, it's one of those things, once you see it, you just can't unsee it. 
and, and finding those across all domains of life. You you had this line about Teal in the book that I loved, and it's it, it's describing him dripping with disdain for incrementalism. And I just love that so much. I, I was just talking, the episode that uh, went live yesterday on What Got You There was with uh, Snowflake CEO Frank Slootman, and he talks about just an utter disdain for uh, incrementalism. So I loved hearing that about Teal as well. Before we dive into seeing the power law everywhere, I, I just have to go a little bit further because I'm fascinated by Teal. I think he truly is one of those legendary type, once in a century, once in a century type thinkers. And you mentioned his thinking process. He has great self-awareness. He goes deep inside of his own intellectual mind and thinks through things. Is there any insights you, you garnered about what that process is actually like for him. I'll give a, a quick example and why I'm really fascinated by this. One of the, one of the people who I think is excellent in what they do is the the basketball coach Phil Jackson, coached the 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 legendary Lakers with Kobe and then also the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls. And he was huge individualizing for 45 minutes before each game, going through each scenario, not the successes only, but about when this happens, then that. This is how I handle that setback. And I'm just wondering how this applies to someone like Peter Thiel who could be one of the most fascinating thinkers in our modern day. So I'm just wondering what Teal does specifically while he's exploring his own thinking that might just be really interesting. You know, I think it's instructive that one of his favorite hobbies and something he did a lot of when he was younger is, is chess. You know, he was a very, very accomplished chess player. And of course, chess is about thinking through scenarios into the future, 15, 20 moves ahead, in a very disciplined way that requires a lot of mental bandwidth. And I think, you know, the fact that he was so good at chess probably did translate into being good as an investor because it, it is that process of thinking, you know, multiple steps ahead. Um, I'd say the self-awareness um, leads him also to, uh, to, to think to sort of discrete insights beyond the big power law idea, right? So um, I remember going to speak to him early on and, and you know, just he would compare hedge fund investing, which of course he's also tried his hand at, with venture capital investing. Um, and he would just, you know, be really smart about comparing the two. And I, and I think that's, again, another mark of a creative thinker when you understand two different fields and you can draw from one and apply to the other. It's a bit like what you were saying earlier on about movies uh, and building a business. Uh, I think Teal is very good at that. Hmm. I would love to dive further in, into seeing the power law everywhere, but you had a story in the book that I thought really encapsulates and helps people clearly understand the power law. And that was, I, I'm sorry if I get his name wrong here, it's Matthew Salganik and the sugar man phenomenon. I would love for you to describe that because I think that's a really concrete example uh, of how the power law plays out here. Sure. So um, I've always loved this movie, uh, uh, Sugar, Searching for Sugar Man, um, which is about this uh, singer, Rodriguez, um, who uh, was kind of like a, a cross between, I don't know, Cat Stevens and Bob Dylan in the early 70s. And he recorded a couple of albums. Um, and in the US, they went nowhere. They sank like a stone. And that was the end of his career recording. The, the record label dropped him and he he worked construction uh, and in fact demolition <laughs> for, for much of the rest of his life in, in Detroit where, where he lived. And then in this whole parallel story, which is just sort of, you know, for anyone who's written a book or created a song or done anything creative, it's like, it's, it's just such a sort of, you know, hits you here, right? It's this, this incredible story about how 
there can be these parallel worlds where in one you fail, the other you succeed. Because what happened with uh, Rodriguez is that he'd recorded these two albums, they'd failed, but um, some tourists from South Africa, and I think also from Australia, had been in the US, bought the albums, taken them home, started playing them, loved them, shared them with their friends, and then bootleg copies had circulated both in Australia and South Africa, and they'd become, you know, so popular, they were like, you know, super number one. I mean, you couldn't go, if you were sort of a, te- a white teenager of a liberal sort of anti-apartheid disposition in South Africa in the, in the mid-late 70s, you could not go to a, a party without hearing the album at least a couple of times, and you would know every word of every song. And I checked this, you know, I wrote my first book about South Africa. I know a lot of South Africans. So I called a friend of mine who'd been growing up at that time. Yep, he knew every word of every song. So it's this sort of parallel story. And it got me thinking about the way that, you know, when you start to succeed um, in some fields in life, uh, more people know about you. Therefore, they tell their friends. Therefore, even more people know about you. And you have this snowball effect um, where success begets more success. On the other hand, if you fail out of the gate, you know, you'll probably never make it anywhere. So that's why you can have these extreme differences in outcomes. In, in, in the US, you can fail totally. In South Africa, you can succeed. And then I came across this research, as you were saying, by, by Matthew Sarganik. I've actually uh, only read his name. I've never met him or spoken to him. Um, so I am also unsure about the pronunciation. But... Um, the point of the research is that he he did this experiment where he um, created different playlists. Uh, uh, he created sorry no he created one playlist, and he created multiple groups of people who could go listen to these playlists, and he invited uh, people to to download a couple of songs that they liked best, and so there'd be one group and I don't know there'd be whatever hundred people in the group or something. And um, the first person would go on there, download a couple of songs. And after about 10 people, you know, one or two songs would have gotten more downloads than the others. And the people who came after that would see the previous downloads and they would be influenced subtly by that. And so success would feed upon success. And the most downloaded songs would then be even more downloaded. And so at the end of the experiment, you'd have one song that was like the, the runaway winner the absolute top bonanza hit. But it would be a different song in each of these parallel worlds because Sargalnik had created these multiple groups. So each time there would be a power law style winner-takes-all outcome, but it would be a different winner, proving that it's this feedback loop. It's not necessarily the quality of the winner that determines success. And so that got me thinking about venture capital more. And, uh, you know, it means that you could, in theory, have an investor or an investment partnership that you know starts out in business, and after a year or two, uh, it gets lucky. It, it it makes an investment that randomly does incredibly well. This creates a reputation, a sort of halo effect. So all of the good entrepreneurs come to that company, uh, and then it creates this self fulfilling prophecy where. You know, because you've done well, the best entrepreneurs come to you because you invest in them, you do well again. And all of a sudden, after 10 years, you look like you're a total genius. Um, And I I had that model in mind as I was, you know, looking at venture capitalists. It made me be skeptical as to whether the success came from luck or from skill. 
I concluded, by the way, that it was skill. Uh, but I, I tested myself on that conviction multiple times. Yeah, you did a really good job too. Uh, in conclusion of the book, I th- I'm pretty sure it was four things that essentially dispelled uh, the complete luck that a lot of people think are, is the result of venture capital. Um, they, they think they're completely lucky where you did a great job um, disproving that essentially. Well, one of the things I've really enjoyed about uh, the Sugar Man phenomenon as well is in some of those different um, scenarios where the song had finished first overall in other groups that hadn't seen its success, it finished 40 out of 48. And I just found that like, it's so fascinating. I don't, it, I feel like it ties together so many different things we've talked about thus far, right? Like even to start the conversation, you were just mentioning about like the patience, but persistence. We're talking about skill versus luck and all these different things where certain times, like you've got to be more process oriented than outcome oriented. Because as we saw there, if you're only outcome oriented, you're going to finish 40 sometimes out of 48. And another time you finish number one overall. I, I just found that so fascinating. I'm, I'm glad you were able to remember that as well as you did. Uh, Cause I thought it encapsulated so much. You've mentioned a uh, few. Yeah, please go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and, and that actually connects to the power lure idea. Cause it, it, it tells you why you need a lot of shots on goal. Right. I mean, because you can't control the outcome, you can only control the process. Um, if you just had one shot, that might not be enough. Um, and so the, the lucky thing for venture capitalists is they get multiple shots on goal. Speaking of multiple shots on goal, I'm just thinking, knowing you and how methodical and how long it takes you to write a book, I, I know you you came across the power law concept and found this so interesting along with hedge funds, um, or sorry, venture capitalists in this instance. But I'm wondering for you, like when do you finally reach that boiling point of 212 degrees where you say, you know what, I'm actually going to spend the next four to five years of my life and, and fully commit to this book. Is that like an evolution or is there a defining, like draw the line in the sand type moment where you finally fully commit? I mean, it's mostly an evolution, right? Because you sort of, you, you know, you have a conversation with a friend that gives you an idea, you look at it, you might throw it out, but you know, that's sort of like the seed investment. And then if you decide it is quite interesting, um, then you'll invest, you know, a month or whatever in checking it out. And that's sort of your series A maybe. And then you, if you get past that and you agree, reach the milestone, which is that you still find it interesting and you think you also might have something distinctive to, to say about it. And you've checked out the existing books in that field and you reckon there's space for you to, to add value. Uh, then you keep going. At a certain point, there is sort of a crossing of the Rubicon because you know, you write in advance in the publishing business. Uh, I mean, you write a, a proposal. Um, that's sort of like a 40-page um, pitch deck. It's not a deck. It's a, it's a piece of prose, but it's the same function. You show it to your, to your real funder at this point, who is, you know, the publishers. And you try to get investment in the form of a book advance. Um, uh, and then once you've gotten that, you know, then you're kind of committed. Uh, but you're not committed necessarily to... A specific outcome because you know and the publisher knows that what you write in the proposal is just your best thinking at the time and if you're going to spend you know a further by this point you're maybe one year in so you're going to spend another three years or so before delivering a final you know even something close to a final draft um, and so if you didn't evolve in those three years you would be a pretty boring person, right? You're always, if you're creative, you're always finding new avenues, adjusting, you know, pivoting and, 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 and figuring out where the real truth is. Um, and, and so you do evolve. It is a process all the way through. Uh, and so I think, you know, to your question, it's more of an evolution than reaching one boiling point and that's it. 
speaking of that evolution, um, I, I'm wondering, is there one of those, aha, once you see it, you can't unsee it, that's was part of the, the power law writing process that now, like writing this book fundamentally changed you. And I'm hoping there might be something other than just, just seeing the the power law and, and asymmetric opportunities. Was there something else that maybe during one of those deep conversations with the legendary venture capitalist, you just couldn't unsee once you heard it? Well, I remember um, talking to um, Mike Moritz, you know, who for a long time was the, the leader of Sequoia Capital. Um, and um, he's an interesting figure because he he'd written two or three books, um, two books before he became a venture capitalist, and and at least one since then. Quick question on uh, this: So you yeah. say more? It's my my ears clearly like perked up. Didn't he write uh, a book that he only sent out to Sequoia people? But it's like this legendary unknown document. Am, am I wrong in this? Or I feel like someone was sharing that example with me. I'm just generally curious on this. Yeah, that's true. He okay. he wrote a book about the founder of Sequoia, which. He, he gave to me, uh, but it's a privately published book, and, yep. and not you can't just go on Amazon. Um, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, it, it, but what he what he said to me, um, which I found flattering but also interesting, is that in some ways doing a startup is is a bit like writing a book. You know, you suffer rejection at the outset. People think you're a bit crazy. You're going into some slightly niche thing, and you're going to spend you know years on it. Um, you, you you get a lot of kind of weird looks at the beginning. Um, and then hopefully if you persist long enough and you create something of value, then you get, you know, recognition, but you have to wait for it and you have to earn it. And you don't know ahead of time that you'll ever actually reach the promised land. You might not uh, if you write a book that turns out to be no good. So, um, you know, there's that risk, there's that commitment in your own path you will get re rejection. You have to bounce back from that. And you have to have the grittiness to, to keep going. And once Moritz said that to me, you know, it did make sense and it stuck with me. Do you reach that valley of despair moment in the process of, of writing books at this point in your career? I mean, I must admit, it's it's less of a roller coaster than it was maybe three books ago because I know that... I have a process. I know it works. I've done it before. And I know that there will be moments when you dig three or four wells and they're all dry and you're out of luck for a month. Um, but in the end, uh, you know, it, something will work out. And you have to have, I, I, at this point, I have enough faith in myself that I, I believe that I'll, I'll make it work. Speaking of that process, would you view that as an overall philosophy, essentially, of how you approach work? Well, it certainly kind of bleeds outside of just sitting at the computer writing or just pumping out emails and LinkedIn messages and working my network to get the access I need. Um, you know, it extends to sort of like how I try to regulate the rhythms of my life outside work. I mean, I think it's important for me to exercise a lot because it's a very sedentary way of life. Um, and so if you don't, you know, get on that Peloton bike or whatever it is that you like uh, before breakfast, in my case, pretty much every day, um, you're just not going to work well. Uh, if you don't maintain friendships and, you know, I'm lucky to be married to somebody who connects with me 
intellectually as well as in other ways. And, you know, if I don't make time for that, um, I just won't function well as a writer. And I, so I, I've, I've kind of learned to see that part of the patience and perseverance and sticking to it over a long period is to have a balance in how you're approaching your life. Hmm. I'd actually like to hear a great example of someone that, that you've researched over time that you thought had a really unique way in terms of crafting their own environment and then cultivating those conditions for, for them to thrive best in their career. Is there anyone that comes to mind for you in terms of unique approaches, in terms of how they went about their work? Well, uh, you know, you said something earlier, Sean, uh, about um, the basketball coach who kind of would always think through the scenarios before the game. And that is like Paul Tudor-Jones, the legendary hedge fund trader, um, who told me that he would, you know, sit in the evenings at home um, in, a, in a dark room uh, and close his eyes and think through what might happen tomorrow in the markets. If oil went up, what would he do about his positions in Japanese equities? If the you know, bond market sold off in the US, how would that translate into his view on European, whatever, commodity stocks? You know, I mean, he had these connections in his head and he was thinking about how A, you know, this play could lead to that play, could lead to the other one. And so if he could figure out the third or fourth domino in that pile of dominoes that was going to keel over and one would hit the next and would hit the next, you know, he could be trading the third and the fourth domino ahead of everybody else. And that's how he would make money. So uh, that always stuck with me as, as a sort of, you know, close your eyes and think through what might happen tomorrow. The, the people who know me best are, are probably smiling and perking up right now because uh, this is actually like part of my process. So even this morning, uh, I sit down and I'm, I'm literally thinking about how my conversation with you, Sebastian, is going to go and what I'm going to ask and how you're going to say something. And then based on that, like there's all these different variables. But I, I don't know, even in my, in my investment process, that's, that's what I do as well. It's like how many different doors can you open and how many different routes can you figure out to that? So, so hearing you talk about Tudor Jones is very interesting because like with anything in life, right, you hear someone who does the same process as you, it's, it's just really interesting to me. Um, so I'm just, I'm just glad you, sh- you shared that story there. I, I would love to go a little bit further on Sequoia though, because you, you want to talk about probably w- w- the best of all time, potentially. Um, I'm just fascinated by them. And I know you got to look, let's just say it underneath the hood and see some more interesting things. What else do they uniquely do? that you feel like has really contributed to their overall success? Is there anything that just comes to mind instantaneously for you with regards to that? You know, I think there's two things I would highlight. I mean, there's a whole bunch, and I, and I did spend a, a lot of time with all the top Sequoia people, and I, I read a lot about them in my book, and I, I think they opened up to me in a way uh, which they hadn't done before, and they, they said to me halfway through the process, we have decided that you are high ROI. What an unbelievable compliment. <laughs> I took that as a big compliment, yeah. but you know, expressed in this wonderfully financial way um, <laughs> that made me laugh. Um, but I, I, I think you know, my conclusion from all those discussions with them were, was twofold. One is that um, they invested in their own process and in their own culture very deliberately indeed, in a way that is different, I think, to not all, but most other venture partnerships. So 
I mean, a lot of VC partnerships are sort of collectives of smart investment partners who all go out, they eat what they kill. Even if they meet on Mondays for the partners meeting to kind of vote on deals or they confer with each other or they might even work together on a deal. Um, it's kind of ad hoc um, and they improvise their way to, to where they need to be. And they're happy that way. And I think if you look at the formation, say, of Benchmark, a super successful um, uh, partnership in, in 1995, it was almost sort of self-consciously that, that they would have five people who would be super similar to each other um, and who would share an approach. They wouldn't even need to discuss how they interacted together because it would just be so natural. And like a basketball team or something, they would go out in the court and they wouldn't need the coach, right? They, they would just go do it. Um, and they were quite deliberate and thoughtful about how each of them interacted as individuals with the portfolio companies, right? I talked to all of the um, you know, early partners and, and I have a lot of respect for their thoughtfulness, but they didn't direct that thought really to their relationships with each other because they were so natural that they didn't, didn't feel like it required that. Sequoia, on the other hand, has devoted enormous amounts of attention um, to their internal process. And so, you know, one of Mike Moritz's sort of favorite jokes is, you know, people ask me, uh, what was my favorite investment? Was it when I invested in Yahoo? Was it when I invested in Google? Was it when I invested in Stripe? No, it was none of these. It's when I invested in Sequoia. Hmm. Meaning when I put my energy and my thoughtfulness into the glue within the building between me and my partners, between those partners and each other, whether that means the way we onboard and train a new recruit and, you know, Rudolf Berta shared with me his experience when he came into Sequoia, how he was turned from being, you know, a brilliant young guy into a really top-of-the-field venture capitalist. It's a different thing. You have to learn new habits and new emotional self-regulation, as I was saying before. He learned that because Sequoia deliberately taught him, right? Uh, there was a process there that made it happen. Um, you know, Sequoia brought in a behavioral scientists to sort of study decision science and teach them how to get better at making collective decisions as a group, not to anchor on each other, uh, not to fall for loss aversion, not to have confirmation bias where you turn down the Series A, so now you want to say in the Series B that the company is no good because that's what you said the last time. You want to make yourself feel good, right? Um, so there were all these very deliberate ways in which the partnership um, sort of figured out its internal bonding. That's point number one. And the second point about Sequoia is that they were willing to take risks with the franchise by going into new businesses in a really gutsy way. So, you know, the first move they did was to go from early stage into the growth business. Um, they went geographically into China. They went into India and Southeast Asia. Now they've gone into Europe. They moved into public markets investing with a, a hedge fund business. They went into sort of an endowment fund with a thing called the, the heritage business, which they have. So time and again, they've innovated the model uh, in a way that was risky. And uh, that's what's getting them ahead of the game. And I think that's what makes them the, 
you know, kind of the pace setter um, for venture for venture capital. I'm fascinated by point number one there around the process and my, my inner nerds just exploding here thinking about what are, what are some of those other things you mentioned, like bringing even behavioral psychologists and, and scientists to help better understand decision-making. Was there anything else that they do that you just, when you came across, they were like, wow, that's, that's really unique and interesting. Sure. I mean, you know, a good example, right, is the way that, um, you know, when you start to research venture capital, um, you, you know, if you're thoughtful and a little bit analytical about it, you know, you, your, your bullshit detector goes up pretty fast, right? You hear all these stories about, you know, you, I would meet an entrepreneur and I'd say, well, you know, how come you took capital from this investor? Or I'd meet the investor and say, how did you get into that deal? And it would always be some story like, gee, you know, um, I happen to, you know, enjoy bicycling. And uh, the other, you know, the investor enjoyed bicycling. And so we talked about, you know, which of us had the better time on some stretch of road, right, in the Portola Valley. And so then we got on and, uh, and then I invested. You know, that kind of, I mean, it's like, come on, you know, this sort of serendipity stuff, um, it's, it's cute, it's fun. I can see why people enjoy telling these stories, but it's not really meaty uh, or satisfying intellectually. Um, and so I was, I was really keen to kind of get behind these stories. And in fact, that bicycling story I just gave you an example of is a real story that Patrick Collison, the co-founder of Stripe, uh, had told me about, you know, when he'd gone to see Michael Moritz at Sequoia, he had gone on his bicycle and Moritz had had a conversation with him. He'd walked him out of the building and outside the building, there was Collison's bike, uh, a Cervelo road bike. And uh, Moritz said, wow, you know, do you go everywhere on that? What's your best time on the uh, stretch of, you know, the, what they call the, the old La Honda, which is a very grueling stretch um, from the Portola Valley up to the Skyline Boulevard. Uh, and, and so that was the story that I'd been told about the investment in Stripe. Um, but then you dig a little deeper and you see the process, right, to your question. And the process and this took me like, to, you know, on the patient's question, this took me sort of three years from hearing that first anecdote to hearing what the real story was behind the anecdote. The real story is um, that when Patrick Collison came to Silicon Valley, uh, the first person he called um, was Paul Graham, the Y Combinator founder, um, uh, because he had known him um, when he had set up his earlier company before Stripe. And... Uh, Paul Graham did an angel investment. Uh, and the reason that Sequoia did the Series A was that Paul Graham had a relationship with Sequoia that, that Sequoia had really cultivated carefully. Sequoia had recognized that Y Combinator was going to be a pipeline of great Series A opportunities. And so it had provided capital to Y Combinator um, to do its own follow-on investing. And it really built that relationship. And out of that came investments in Airbnb, uh, in Dropbox. Uh, and out of it also came Stripe, because when Collison was ready to go beyond that seed check from Paul Graham, and he said to Paul, you know, I, I think I'm ready for the Series A, the first VC partnership that Graham telephoned was, of course, uh, uh, Sequoia. So Sequoia, you know, got to Stripe, first. And sure, it was nice to bond over the bicycling, right? But that wasn't the real story. Um, and so it was that process of deliberately building the Sequoia network by partnering with um, partnering with Y Combinator, by setting up what they call the Scouts program, 
which is a clever idea, which I think you know everybody else has now copied, um, where you go to the entrepreneurs in your portfolio and you say, um, hey, you know, you haven't exited yet, you don't have a lot of money yet to play with. You may be worth a lot of money on paper, but you know, it's not it's not liquid money you can go do seed checks with. So we'll give you the seed check money. Um, you go invest it. Uh, we'll split the proceeds from that. But of course, what Sequoia really wants is not the proceeds from the seed check. It's having the recipient of the seed check on the Sequoia radar um, so that they know uh, what's coming down the pike in, in terms of you know, Series A opportunities. And so it's that network um, construction, um, that deal flow pipeline construction, which doesn't just happen yeah. by itself. You think strategically about how to create it. Yeah. This has me thinking specifically about you, Sebastian, because you mentioned earlier reaching out to, to one of the LPs in Sequoia and got introduced into an email uh, to Doug. And I mean, it's a great story and all, but like, there's so much more there, I feel like, why a company like Sequoia lets you so deep into their internal processes and then actually goes to say that you provide them a great ROI. You've gotten behind the curtain of so many fascinating people and companies that very few people on this planet have ever been able to do. So I'm wondering, the self-awareness you have, what is it that you've done distinctly unique that has allowed you to do that that isn't part of building up your credibility and name? There, there has to be more than that because there's plenty of great reporters or people writing a book who've got unbelievable names but these companies and these people don't let them see behind the curtain. So I'm wondering if there's anything that that you've kind of just overall awareness have built up and realized, you know what, there's probably more here to this. You know, I think um, beyond the patience point that I mentioned earlier, I think it, it's hard work um, and, and honesty and openness. Um, so on the hard work side, I mean, this is something that, you know, any – good interviewer would say, you know, I know you've spent the weekend reading my book, The Power of Law, and thank you. Um, but without that preparation, you wouldn't be able to ask me good questions. And without thinking through in your own mind, you know, how one question might lead to another question and doing that mental preparation that you talked about, you know, this wouldn't be such a good conversation. And I very much believe that. Um, when I was a journalist at the Washington Post for a bit, I remember speaking to Steve Cole, um, a very accomplished writer who later became um, the dean of the Columbia School of Journalism. And Steve was, um, you know, gave me a tip that stuck stuck with me, which is, you know, you're going to go interview these people and you're going to ask them to reconstruct events, which might be 10 years ago or perhaps even more than that. And their memories are going to be a little bit rusty. So what you do is you find out every single data point about them that exists, like all of it. Every YouTube interview they've given, every tweet they've sent, every, every time they've been quoted anywhere. And you put all that together, you synthesize it in your mind, you, you create a, a big document that, that has all of that in there. And you figure out chronologically kind of how they went through certain episodes, which you think, which you see as exciting and worth recreating in your book. And you walk into the interview with a timeline that says, all right, I know that on Tuesday morning, um, you were in this place because you sent a tweet out um, saying that's where you were. And I know that on Tuesday afternoon, you had gone to the other place because that's when you met the other guy 
and you had that meeting. So let's just talk about that. How did you get from the first place to the second place? Did you drive? Did you get a ride with somebody? And then you're jogging their memory. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I drove with my friend. And that was interesting because on the way we were talking about this. And, you know, he made this good point to me. And that's why when I had that meeting, I approached it this way, not the other way. And so it's by providing the scaffolding for people's memories that you get the rest uh, out. I kind of think of myself sometimes as walking in kind of with the, like, you know, those um, those those juice powders that you add water and stir. Yeah. Uh, I've got the powder and I'm asking for the water and I want to do a joint effort of stirring, right? Um, but obviously it takes a lot of time to prepare um, for, to create those chronologies. I'm fortunate that, you know, I, I these days have a research associate working with me who can help because it's very labor intensive indeed. But I, I, I really believe in this sort of deep, deep intensive preparation. Second thing I said was openness and honesty. And I, I have a different approach here, I think, than some people. Um, journalists um, often feel, uh, and, and their editors often feel at newspapers, that it's a bad thing um, to be too open with the subjects you're writing about, that you should ask questions, but not necessarily say what's behind them. You shouldn't necessarily agree to share um, the text of what you've written afterwards and invite comments. And I just fundamentally, I mean, I thought about this carefully. I, and I just think that's wrong. I think it's wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong is that if you say to somebody you're writing about, look, here's the deal. Um, I'm going to share with you what I write. I'm not promising to change it, right? I have the right to say what I believe and what I think and what I've analyzed and what I've concluded but you have the right to comment on it. And I want to hear your comments because if I've made a factual error, I, I want to hear that. If I've left something out, I want to hear that. And if my interpretation is wrong, I want to hear that, even if I end up disagreeing with you and not changing it, right? And so I go through this process of, first of all, that builds some confidence ahead of time that people think, okay, this is going to be, I'm not going to be sandbagged. Uh, I'm not going to be ambushed. And I am going to, be involved in a process where I don't get to control the outcome, but I do get to be sure I'm having input, right? Mm -hmm. Meaningful input. And then secondly, I do what I promise. You know, I write, I create a draft that I'm feeling good about. I share, you know, that piece of the chapter that relates to this person. And I say, and I, and I share the context around, I send them 10 pages or something, right? And I say, hey, you know, all comments, anything you want to tell me, I'm listening. And sometimes I just get back, you know, that's great. Sometimes I get back, you know, on page seven, you know, you got the date wrong. And sometimes I get a three-hour phone call where we really debate the issues and like how I could have framed the whole thing differently. And then I have to think about it. Sometimes I change, sometimes I don't. I don't have to change it. But I think that sort of second round you know, often gets me, you know, deeper. It's, it, it can be intellectually stressful, yeah. right? Because you've already spent hours and hours and hours generating the first draft that you're happy with. But when you go back and you rip it up and you redo it, you get to a deeper truth. Um, and, and so I, I believe this process creates, you know, something that is closer to really reconstructing and recreating how my subjects think 
how they come at the world, how they're different from other people, how they how they get to where they've gotten, to use your terminology, right? Um, other writers and, and editors and newspaper people would say, I shouldn't be playing such an open hand that it, it might corrupt me in some way. I disagree. Speaking of how certain people think, wow, that, that last three minutes understanding how you think the humility that requires um, the self-awareness, the understanding, the, vul- the the vulnerability there to have your ideas, your writing picked apart there. I, I just think it's awesome. And Sebastian, I need to thank you personally. One of the things I don't do a good job of that I can do a much better job of is like you just said, provide the scaffolding to jog someone's memory where I hear someone bring up a specific thing or I read about it in a transcript and I think instantaneously they'll be able to rewind back into that moment. And I forget, I've got to craft the conditions to allow them to get back to that place. So for me personally, I don't know if anyone else got that point, but I just thought that was so important for me. I, I know- Sure, sure, sure. Just on that, I, I should warn you though. So that works for me because, you know, if I get no answer, like the person still doesn't remember anything, I just leave it out. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how you're going to edit this conversation, but um, you know, sometimes you try that scaffolding technique and, and it doesn't work. It doesn't jog people's memory. It's a dry hole that you've just drilled. Um, and and you have to just throw it out and try it the next time. You know. Oh, absolutely. So a, f- a few final ones here I'm just really intrigued by. I'm sure this would be an incredibly hard question to answer. I am wondering, though, all the people you've researched, you've studied, if you've been able, if you were able to just go for a year and just essentially shadow this person, who would you think you could just learn the most interesting things and you'd walk away just a, an incredibly different person? Is there someone you would love to be able to shadow if you had to? Well, that's a that's a great question. You know, I'm I'm intrigued, um, like everybody, by the whole world of Web three and and the metaverse and um, uh, crypto, and um, I don't write a whole lot about it really at all in my book. Um, but I am fascinated by it. And so, you know, I'd love to shadow a great investor who follows Web3 mm-hmm. really closely and understand this because I, I, I firmly believe that something is going to come out of this. I think we're at a kind of, you know, the internet right before Netscape was created. We haven't quite got the killer app yet that will make it go mainstream. But there's so much talent going into this space that somebody's going to create it. So we need to identify you know, who the Mark Andreessen is going to be of, of Web3. Um, and in some ways, you know, funnily enough, it might be Mark Andreessen, right? Because it's his firm, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, which has put so much resources into um, making bets uh, on, on the metaverse. Um, so I'd, I'd love to shadow him or Chris Dixon or somebody over there um, to, to kind of get inside the cockpit and, and see how that's working. Speaking of transition and change, what do you think the evolution of venture capital is going to be like moving forward? It's a really great question because on the one hand, you've got this, you know, shift to scale, right? Where growth capital has exploded in size. Um, going public has become, um, something that people delay, uh, and so a lot of kind of dollar growth in um, in in total VC numbers, which we know are, you know has just gone off the charts in the last couple of years, a lot of that growth is is late stage growth. Um, I, I see that as something that may stick around, may not stick around. It might depend a bit on how regulation affects um, companies' choices of whether to go public or whether to stay private. 
Um, but I actually don't see it as kind of like the, the really fascinating world-changing piece of, of venture. What I think is, you know, really world-changing is more sort of scaling the early part of the funnel. In other words, um, having a, a world in which the ability to raise a C check, a series A check, a series B check, that early part of the entrepreneurial journey is not only no longer just confined to Silicon Valley, which you know, we've already passed that stage where it's broken out of the valley, but is really globalized you know, fundamentally. Um, uh, and so we've already seen it move into China. We've seen it move into India and Southeast Asia. And now it's coming to Europe and it's, it's beginning in Latin America to take off. But I really think this thing could be taken a whole lot further, right? And so I'm super excited by, you know, there's a small um, outfit called, um, I think it's called Pioneer, um, which was started by uh, an alumnus of um, Y Combinator. Yeah, Daniel Gross. We've actually, exactly. I know Daniel pretty well. Yeah, we've had him on a few times. So he, very interesting look in, in finding undiscovered talent and then providing talent, yeah. the resources. Yeah, that's Pioneer. I think Pioneer and things like Daniel is doing is, is the big future. I think, you know, Entrepreneur First, which is run by um, uh, somebody I quote in the book called Matt Clifford, London-based, but it's now gone global, of, which is another kind of YC, a variant on YC, a way of incubating AI startups. I think putting more and more globalized energy into giving people a path where you don't have to choose between joining company A or company B. You could just join you know, your own company that you start. Uh, I, I think that developing that pipeline of new startups is the most exciting thing that's that I'm looking forward to watching. Yeah, me too. Speaking of giving people that energy and that power to, to do their own craft, one of the things that have done that for me uh, is books. And obviously, I, I found your books fascinating. We're going to talk more about those in a second. But you're sitting in front of a, a massive bookcase. I would love to know, have there been a few books for you that, let's just call them foundational books, that you thought were really instrumental for you and you might even go back to time and again? Um, you know, I'm a fan of um, uh, Roger Lowenstein, um, who's a, a financial writer who did long-term, you know, the long-term capital management book called When Genius Failed. He wrote a great biography of uh, Warren Buffett. Um, and uh, I've gone back to, to those books, um, actually particularly the Buffett book, just a way of describing value investing and how Buffett thought about it. Um, so he was a bit of a role model for me when I was writing my book about hedge funds. Um, other examples, there's a slightly different book. Um, there's a, uh, yeah, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, helped me to think about um, venture and startups, as I was saying earlier. I think um, the hard thing about hard things um, by Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz is a great book about the stress and trauma and heartache of starting a company. Um, and he did this, you know, he went through the, the dot-com crash as a startup founder and it was not fun, but he came through the other end and I, I thought that was an inspirational book. Um, so th I, I'd name those three. I love it. We're, we're going to link everyone up with your books here in a minute, but I would love to know, if you could do this long form conversation, sit down with anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you thoroughly enjoy having a deep dive conversation with? You know, I would be intrigued um, 
to do this with Masayoshi Son of, of SoftBank. Yeah. And, and the reason is I, I, you know, I pride myself on getting to see, you know, just about all the people I write about. And um, I think I'm better at that than, than most researchers. Um, but I have to confess that Son is one person I never managed to see because at the point where I'd kind of um, penetrated his operation, you know, I'd spoken to various people who had worked for him. Um, I'd gone back and spoken to them a second time. I'd figured out kind of, you know, who he was, where he came from, what I think what I think I know what makes him tick. But you know, this was the moment when uh WeWork uh was going down the tubes and um a bunch of his other investments were going down the tubes, and he was uh one of you know, it was just the, completely the wrong moment to try and approach him. So I think I would have interviewed him if if the timing had um been different and if I'd been even more patient than I was. Uh, and waited, you know, another couple of years to publish this book. Uh, I probably, I'm sure, would have seen him, but um, I didn't get to see him. Uh, and he's somebody who is fascinating because he's reinvented himself so many times. And he was a software entrepreneur in Japan. Then he was a tech investor in the uh, late '90s. He got killed, 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 killed by the Nasdaq bubble imploding. But he picked himself up with his famous Alibaba investment. Um, and, you know, did fantastically well. Then the wave crested when he had the Vision Fund and that went wrong with WeWork and, you know, he came back again with investing in, you know, the public equity market uh, at, the, at the depths after COVID hit. So he just has this pick himself up again risk appetite. I think it probably comes from his... Um, distinctive Korean-Japanese roots. You know, Korean people are marginalized in Japan, and so he always had a, a really bitter, I think, outsider's feeling about how he came at the world. But I would love some to sort of like further test and deepen my understanding of, of, of his psychology. Yeah, that would be fascinating to, to read your insights on that. We're going to have everything linked up with you, your books, uh, your previous books, and the newest one, The Power Law, which uh, we'll have some parting words here in a minute. But I, I just wanted to let you know, I mean, your earlier books, as you know, um, The Man Who Knew About Greenspan, that was the first book of yours I got introduced to you on, and I just loved it. And then obviously, More Money Than God About the Hedge Funds, I thought was interesting. And then I had so much joy getting to dive deep into The Power Law, which is your newest book, all about venture capital, because you do such an incredible job getting these unique insights that others don't get, but then you're able to weave this interesting storytelling that kind of like keeps you on the edge of your seat while also pulling apart and teasing out some of these big foundational mindsets and strategies that the best of the best use. So it's so applicable, but it's also one of those really enjoyable reads, and that's not always the case with people. Um, so I just wanted to let you know, like I, I really do enjoy your work, um, especially the last book, The Power of Law. So I just wanted to say thank you for putting out great work, and just want to make sure, do you have any final words um, about the book, The Power of Law? Of course, it's going to be linked up. I know we covered a lot uh, of the unique, interesting things, but there's so much more in this book. I just wanted to see if you had anything left to say about it. I guess the last thing I would say is simply that, you know, my feeling about, you know, the long history of capitalism, uh, if you'll permit me to end on a kind of rather grand, even grandiose note. Um, but I, I do think that different arrangements come along every so often that fundamentally change the way that capitalism works. And so, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, it was really the invention of the joint stock 
limited liability company that made possible the creation of all the big corporations that we now know of in America. And, um, and so that, that legal innovation was super important. If you go forward maybe a century or so, you see the rise of junk bonds uh, and the leverage buyout as you know, what enabled that whole wave of unbundling and re-engineering and you know, the kind of lean corporation, the GE type model of the 1990s, fundamentally changed the way that American capitalism worked. You know, it was pretty brutal, um, but it was super competitive. And I think we're now at a time where this venture capital investment that I write about in my book kind of is the investment model that everybody needs to understand to get where capitalism is at. I mean, you know, Sequoia today is like Goldman Sachs 20 years ago. It is the financial company that tells you how the world is operating, where it's going, and, you know, how it's going to move. And the reason is partly that, you know, it's not just that, you know, we've got Web3 or that we've got certain specific technologies. It's bigger than that. The reason is that fundamentally the economy has moved towards where the value is intangible. It's not physical assets that we care about. It's intellectual property. It's ideas. It's, it's patents. It's new software. It's, it's drug development. It's all of these business processes. And these ideas are things that are difficult to value if you're an accountant putting together financial statements, right? To value them, you've got to be a hands-on investor who gets close to the company, who knows if a given software project is worth a lot or nothing. And that's what venture capitalists ultimately bring. They figure out a way of coming at the world that really gets them into the intangible economy and enables it to make it, you know, to make it really buzz. Uh, and that's what my book is trying to explain to people. Sebastian, this was a fascinating, thoroughly enjoyable conversation. So I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Terrific. Great to be with you, Sean. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.